place can be a locker room, it can be the hill, it can be an Aetna insurance office. It is absolutely the best framework in which to tell a story. It, it's the place you begin, it's the place you, you end and you wind back to. And again, as a complete radio novice, I want to just play um, a piece which I think is, is incredibly beautiful and um, it, it describes place through, through music and um, song. I think this is probably an exceptional example of, of place. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Michelle Norris. Singer-songwriter Sufjan Stevens has a lofty goal, exploring each of the 50 United States in song. He's already released a critically acclaimed full-length CD, simply called Michigan, and he's just finished a new record about Illinois. Independent radio producers Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister were curious about how Stevens writes his songs, so they introduced Stevens to the small town of Brinkley, Arkansas. Brinkley is located just a few miles from where the ivory-billed woodpecker recently was rediscovered. The ivory-billed had been thought extinct. In fact, the previous confirmed sighting of the bird in the United States was in Louisiana back in 1944. That was in what was known as the Singer Tract, an area which was clear-cut to make sewing machine boxes and then ammunition cases and caskets during World War II. The rediscovery of the Ivory Bill was big news and brought a ray of hope to the residents of Brinkley. Producers Collison and Meister spoke with people in the town, then shared the interviews with Sufjan Stevens. He wrote a song about the Ivory Bill, known as the Lord God or Great God Bird. Together, they offered this portrait of Brinkley and the bird. My name is Sandra Kimmer, and I'm executive director and secretary and dishwasher and mop pusher, anyway, for the Brinkley Chamber of Commerce. And I was born in Brinkley, and it's flat since we're on the Delta, and you can see forever. In the Delta sun, down in Arkansas, it's the great God It's a place where you can find spiritual solace. We have so many churches. I am Gene D. Priest, the owner of Gene's Barbecue and Restaurant in Brinkley, Arkansas. I came to Brinkley in 1957. I was born and raised a 15 mile of here. It was like 5,200 population in Brinkley. It's down to 3,800 now. So it's a strictly farming community. It's a place where you can call a wrong number and talk for five minutes. My name is Penny Childs. I'm owner and operator at Penny's Family Hair Care. We have a good little town. We have a good group of people. It's just our economy is not real good. You know, minimum wage jobs is what we mostly have. We have lots of tree-lined streets. I'm Billy Clay, and I'm currently, they're letting me be mayor of Brinkley for a little while. We have people that care about their community and about the children, which we really do feel are our future. We're coming up on graduation, and that is, to me, a very sad occasion because we're exporting these young people out because there's not anything really primarily to hold them. You know, some will go off to college, but they won't return. On the great bayou where they saw it fall, it's the My name is Gene Sparling. I'm an amateur woodsman and naturalist and adventurer from Arkansas. Was kayaking through Bio de View in February of 2004 and 
was in a particularly ancient primeval section of forest. Came around a small bend. I'd set my paddle down and was sitting back in my kayak, reveling in the peace and beauty and wonder of the place I was in. And a large bird flew into the channel and landed on a tree, and I thought to myself, that looks like a woodpecker on steroids. We learned today great comebacks are still possible in this great country, and this is a big one. The ivory-billed woodpecker, last seen back in 1944 and thought to be extinct since then. It has been rediscovered in Arkansas. The bird, once believed magical by Native Americans, Legend was has it when people would see one, they would exclaim in shock, Lord God, what a bird. first heard that they had spotted it of course I was like everybody else you got to be kidding but I had been in the area where they found it and I'm almost sure I've seen it before but I didn't know what I was looking at so you know it's one of those things that just looked like a small pterodactyl coming out of a tree to me. I'm Chuck Waller I've been in Brinkley since 1946 and I was raised right within a mile of where they probably discovered this bird. A boy growing up I wasn't really interested in looking at that bird. Back then I was interested in catching me a crappie or a bass or catching me a coon or whatever it took to survive out in the swamp. And it's a beautiful place. I've been a many happy hour out there. My name is Boyce Allwhite. I'm the fire chief of Brinkley Fire Department. I've seen some big woodpeckers back there, but I never knew that they had one extinct, in it, you know, like this. So there's a good possibility, yes, I've seen the bird. It's hard to let that go. Um, I just think that piece is successful on so many levels. Um, the dialects were like content in themselves, and it didn't make fun of people. It just sort of let them speak in their own language, and um, the voices conveyed a sense of place. And increasingly, if you read material, read newspapers, look at blogs, look at the internet, that is extinct we are seeing and hearing less and less of that sort of writing and texture, and you guys sort of have the the, the last hold on that. And whenever I'm out trying to report place, I try and act more like a photographer instead of a reporter, and that is to let the organic situation kind of blossom in front of you and not control the situation. I'm sure they were very strategic about who they went to. Think about it, they went to all the touchstones of a small town, the mayor. They went to the barber shop next where uh, they had had a, a woodpecker haircut where the beautician devised this woodpecker haircut. They went to the barbecue joint where they named a sandwich after the Lord God bird. Um, they just went to the, t they went to the town hall, the woman who was the head mop pusher. So they just hit all the touchstones of any small town. And by staying right there, they created this captured sense of place. It was this lost place, very insular, unpierced by outsiders, until this bird brought the Audubon Society from England and Brian Williams. And it's a piece about extinction and revival, as told, you know, through the story of this bird. I, I, can anyone just pitch in? Does, does, does anyone like that piece? Is that a beautiful story? If we all could have Sufjan do our music to our, our soundtracks to our stories. But um, 
let's just kind of make this a give and take. I'm going to now talk just a little bit about um, how do you approach the cosmos of a story? How do you go from the larger world to the inner world? Um, this could be whether you're conceiving your own idea or you have an assignment from an editor. A couple of years ago, I had, I am an enterprise writer at the Post, and I tend to get to spend some time on stories. So a couple of years ago, um, I wanted to write about immigration, as everybody else in the country was writing about immigration in the wave of the 2000 census. So we're all using this massive document, trying to figure out what's the story of America. And so I used the census as my outer place to start. And if you looked at the figures, the, the South had experienced the greatest wave of immigration, the highest rate of immigration in the last 10 years between 1990 and 2000. Um, North Carolina had the highest rate, Arkansas was second, Georgia was number three. So the top three places were in the American South. I guess conventional wisdom would say, well, where do you go? You go to uh, North Carolina, which had the, the fastest rate of growth. But I, in talking with my editor, um, decided to go to Georgia. And Georgia had one thing, despite being number three, it had one thing that none of those other states did, and that's the city of Atlanta. Atlanta, Georgia is the cradle of the civil rights movement. The American South had been unpierced by outsiders forever. I mean, most people mark it since Reconstruction, but it had only been a two-tone black and white society. What is it like to experience immigration on a fresh slate? What is it like for an immigrant to, to experience America for the first time in a place that only knew black and white? And I looked at some of the census tracts and saw that there are huge Latino communities um, exploding within a few miles of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is where Martin Luther King had preached. I mean, what better sort of context and conflict do you need? So I spent the year in Atlanta writing about immigration. So through reading and through talking, which we have less and less time of to do in newsrooms right now, okay, that's the most underused skill that we do is just spending that front end time thinking through a lot of reading and, and talking uh, with editors and, and respected colleagues. I decided to go to Atlanta and pick four groups of Four groups. I knew I could do four groups of people in one year, and I basically lived in Atlanta most of that year. Naturally, I would have to pick a, a Latino because that was the hugest growth. So um, I decided to um, write about second-generation immigrants to further narrow that story instead of just Atlanta, to only write about second-generation or 1.5-generation immigrants. So then you would have a commonality of theme, and you also have kids. There's no better navigators through a world or a richer subculture than a 17-year-old kid. And Atlanta had suburbs, exurbs, inner city. It had everything. So I found a 17-year-old Latina to write about. And what was the tension in her story? Early dropout, early pregnancy is just off the charts among Latinas in Atlanta. And the reasons are, you know, obvious. There's, they, they came into the, the, the school system in the 1990s. There were no bilingual teachers in most of the Atlanta schools. They didn't know how to teach the kids. So high rates of illiteracy, teen pregnancy, and dropping out. So I found a 17-year-old Latina who lived across from a Waffle House in Roswell, Georgia. And her, her goal was not to become a statistic. And I followed her life. I also followed the life of a 17-year-old Vietnamese girl. Her parents didn't speak English. Amy Wen was sort of the, um, you know, bright, shiny Nissan, 18, you know, CDs, and then think, you know, she's driving crazy. Her parents think she's going to be a doctor. She is a C student and is not going to meet those expectations. So the tension was, how is Amy Wen going to find her way in America when she's not going to be a doctor? 
The third guy I found, um, I wrote about African immigrants, and I found a 21-year-old guy from the West African country of Mali, and I found him at the airport just by doing a lot of research to find out where um, low-wage laborers clustered in Atlanta, and also it was at the airport, and the airport is this iconic place. We all have been stuck in Atlanta Airport. So I spent my time with Adama mostly in the Atlanta Airport. He started his job as a janitor cleaning the men's room from 7 to 3, and then he would go into a bathroom and change into a new uniform and go to the Budweiser Brew House and Smoking Company until midnight. That was his entire life. It was, some, it was so Orwellian, you wouldn't believe it. And then he would take the, the metro home to his crappy little apartment on Buford Highway, and that was his life, and that's what I followed. And for the fourth thread, I thought, I need an orchestra. I can't have a singular profile. The reader deadens when you have the same thing. The listener deadens when you keep having the same theme. So I decided to go to a fast food restaurant, and I pitched um, the Waffle House headquarters. I went to the wrote letters to the president. They wouldn't let me do it. They thought we'd be making fun of Waffle House. And why did I pick Waffle House? Because it's this great, iconic, southern yellow thing in all of our minds. Um, but so I struck out there. Then did some more research to find out who owns fast food. Never go to McDonald's or Burger King. They'll almost always say no. So try and sort of, you know, you need access. You can't write a story where someone won't let you in the door. I learned that... Um, in East Indians were purchasing Dairy Queens faster than anybody and owned more in the American South than anybody. So I approached an owner named Rizwan Momin in Stockdale, Georgia, if I could hang out at his Dairy Queen, which is basically what I did all summer. And who works at a Dairy Queen? No kid in his right mind works at a Dairy Queen. Everyone worth their salt works at Abercrombie or Starbucks or Banana. They're not at Dairy Queen. These are a certain kind of kids. These are working class black and white kids. These are newer immigrants. And it was this beautiful, rich way of telling this, the chaotic story of immigration in Atlanta, all under this iconic Dairy Queen place. And the reporting, all the reporting took place within those walls. I often left to go home with the kids who worked there to see what their lives were like outside of the Dairy Queen, but every bit of the story was under that roof at different hours. And it was told from the point of view of the kids, of the, of the drivers coming up the driveway. I would really approach that story like, like a, a photographer. I would be there early in the morning. I would stay there late at night, work at the drive through window, stand on the other side of the counter. It was just this huge, beautiful symphony of, of, of cultures crashing into each other. And I'll read you just kind of the opening, the opening part of that story. And I would have given anything to sort of have this be um, in radio, but, I'm, but I didn't have to contend with the um, sound of trying to trap all the sounds perfectly at a, at a Dairy Queen. But I just wanted to make it kind of a collision of things. Um, okay, this is pretty short. The Dairy Queen glows in the night, a beacon of Americana. But inside, chaos descends. Twelve customers are waiting at the front counter, and the drive through lane is a snake of headlights, the voices over the speaker unrelenting. I want caramel on the bottom of that mudslide, a lot of caramel, you hear? One chicken value meal with a Mr. Pib, and let me see, three value meals, and could you cut up all them burgers? Do you have supersized drinks, or is large the biggest? Cisco Montañez is 15 years old and working the window. His Dairy Queen hat is cocked on his head like a tilted ornament. His khakis are circus big. He's half Latino and half black, so he has plenty of reason to glare at the Confederate flag moving toward him on a GMC Suburban. At least one flag comes through every night. Cisco turns, back, turns his back on the flag and reaches for a plastic banana split boat. As he fills it with three puffs of vanilla ice cream, he begins to rap. This life hurts, no cushion for me, no carpet laid out. We either sell or we're getting sold. 
The Indian immigrants who work at Dairy Queen have no idea what Cisco is talking about. He raps all night, breathless incantations about injustice, pistols, and housing projects. The Indians are mystified by a brain that fires out couplets but won't do schoolwork. He don't use his brain in the right way, says Ali Momin, the 22-year-old assistant manager. Ali presses the drive through speaker and greets the customers with his musical Indian accent. Welcome to Dairy Queen. May I take your order, please? Long pause and then a southern drawl. Do what now? This little Dairy Queen, the walls decorated with plaques of all-white t-ball teams. An employee named Miss Carol wears a Jesus Cares pin on her uniform while her Muslim supervisor cooks his food in a crock pot separate from the DQ food. The franchise owner swings by in his Porsche to check on receipts. And Cisco at the drive-thru, ranting about race, six miles from a tourist spot called Gone with the Wind Historical District. The Dairy Queen on State Road 138 has been visited by a global awakening, all beneath a swirl's top soft-serve ice cream cone. As Cisco says in one of the night's chants, tomorrow is right now. And that was essentially the opening of a very long piece of... That, that was, um, you know, one of those super easy reporting experiences where I don't know what the analogy would be in your world, but you can't write fast enough. The stuff is so good, and all you and it's it's, it's kind of one of those soft ones coming over the middle. There are seventeen-year-old kids all piled up on top of each other and cussing and smoking pot, and you know all this. It's, it's this great world, and all you have to do is sort of get out of the way. And you know, I don't believe in that saying: the piece writes itself. But you can sort of back away and, and just stop your question asking and just listen and observe and catch every possible detail. And that's what this story was about, opening the notebook and watching what happened from a million different angles. I would go back in the frozen food area. What's in the frozen food area? You know, go back to the, I would stand at the drive through window for hours where Cisco would stand, watching the cars roll through. What did cars look? What was in the contents of those cars as they, as they rolled through? But that was a very kind of insular reporting experience, a different kind of reporting experience. The war's coming. You get on a plane, you're deployed to, you know, one of the air, I went to so many bases when the war happened, when it started, as we all did, to just sort of write about deployment, write about the run-up to the war. How do, you, how do you capture a place when you land there and you know nothing about the place? There are some um, simple things that I always sort of do by in, by habit now, but they're kind of good to remember. You always drive around the place and drive around the place with your windows open. You never want to encapsulate yourself or separate yourself from the world you're covering. Never, ever read USA Today, okay? It is the death of America. It's the future of the country. And try and go in these little mini-marts. Stay out of the big chains and go to the little mom-and-pop mini-marts and get all those little newspapers that are free that you always see next to the real newspapers. Read those. Get the town paper. Read the obituaries. Obituaries in eastern Kentucky are the best in the world. God bless her soul, Millie Mae went down to father yesterday. I mean, there are these long, kind of beautiful, that you never see. Of course, you don't see that language in the New York Times. I mean, read every little thing that's in the town. Eat where the locals eat. Drive around the Walmart. That's especially important when you're writing about war. Uh, Walmart will kick you out in about six minutes, but you have six minutes to go through there and interview as many people as possible. Um, what I learned in the war is... Everybody takes their picture before being sent off. Every soldier does. And so you go to the photo booth right away before you get kicked out and talk to a couple people there. Get their phone numbers 
the second thing you do so you can call them at home before you get kicked out. That sort of get the phone number rule works in a lot of places where you're going to get kicked out right away. Always get their phone number at the top of the conversation and their name to call back later. So once you're kicked out of the Walmart, you hang out in the parking lot and you kind of do the same thing there until you're kicked out there. Um, what are the cars in the parking lot? What are the bumper stickers say on those cars? What are people wearing? Um, I've sat in countless motel rooms or libraries counting the number of churches in the yellow pages. Looking at, looking at a town phone book to see what the tenor of the town is. You can do the same thing in Manhattan or Cleveland or Philadelphia. You learn a lot by seeing church listings in a phone book. I've been to towns where there are literally 130 First Baptist churches. It's very revealing about a place. Um, once when I had to write about chicken processing in northern Arkansas, the town was going Latino. And how do you say that? How do you prove that other than talking to workers as they're walking off the Tyson's plant? I went to the property appraiser's office, which is uh, you know, public record, and I asked to see the, 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 the title transfers for the last 10 years. I went through these big old-fashioned books that were piled up on file folders, and I saw tons and tons, a growing trend of Anglo names selling to Latino names. There's some hardcore proof to say that in the last 10 years, half the home sales have gone to Latinos. This, that took about three hours, to be honest. If you don't have that kind of time, you can't do that kind of time. Call a real estate agent. Real estate agents are also fabulous, gabby, gossipy, vindictive, um, you know, tour guides through a town. They know what's going on. Um, how do you learn a place? I mean, when I first moved to Washington, I rode around with cops at night because I didn't know Washington and I wanted to get to know it. Police officers are great tour guides. Now, you're always going to get one side of the coin with them, and you have to realize that, but call the sheriff, call the police chief, and ask for permission to ride. How do you ask for permission to ride? I mean, some, some of us still fumble with that. I ha I'm like, hate to call people. I don't know why I'm in journalism. I'm so shy. I, I, I look at the phone for like 30 minutes, you know? And I happen to sit in a place, I sit with like national security and congressional people who are basically chewing out senators all day, and I can't even pick up the phone to call somebody in a town. Um, fake it. Just tell yourself you're a reporter and pick up the call, pick up the phone and ask for the chief of police and say, is it possible if I ride with one of your officers for a night? I want to I wanna get to know the town. I want to see what life looks like, you know, between the hours of 11 and 6 a.m. Um, what are the taxi drivers listening to in their taxis? I mean, in D.C. you get, you know, U.N. speeches verbatim by the taxi drivers. Um, um, what are the signs in the windows of a mini-mart? Those are always great, the handwritten signs. Community bulletin boards, Walmart has them, grocery stores has them, laundromats, ethnic markets are fabulous, organic food markets are fabulous. If you're trying to find people to talk to, go to the library, look for historical photographs, talk to librarians, ask to see archives, ask to see all the old photos. Um, high school football games are wonderful ways of, of getting at a community. Um, Who's cleaning the motel rooms? I always, I mean, here I find myself wondering who the low-wage labor is. Um, walk through cemeteries and read names. I spent a lot of time in Newark last year, and the cemetery explains <laughs> Newark. You, you go from Philip Roth's Newark to current-day Newark, and it's all right there on the headstones. Um, Sometimes these, these little details that you're just trying to be aware of in your reporting yield great jackpots. Um, does everyone remember the Susan Smith case? 
South Carolina woman who drove her children into the lake. My colleague at the Post is a wonderful writer named David Finkel, and he went down to do a magazine piece on this, and he does the kind of stuff I do where we situate ourselves and we watch something. So he went to the lake all day after Susan Smith was in jail just to see who was coming to the lake. And all these people from around the south were coming to bring teddy bears and stuffed animals and little, it was a big shrine for the children. So Finkel decided to sit there on the, on the side of the lake all day and watch. Well, he's sitting there and he sees this concrete sign. It says the John D. Long Lake. I mean, I wouldn't th give it another thought, but he decides to wonder, well, who's John D. Long? And he goes and he researches it at the library. Turns out John D. Long was a famous lawyer in this part of South Carolina who had defended a mother who had killed her children in the 40s. It's just, it's, I mean, yes, that's kind of the rare jackpot, but stuff like that, you just have to be aware of everything. And if you don't naturally do this well, force yourself, write on your notebook or give yourself a pep speech before you get to a place, look for X, Y, and Z, or just remember that John D. Long story. That fact alone terrifies me every time I go out to report because I know I'm not going to look at the sign and think to ask the question. So I just say to myself, John D. Long, you know, and then I kind of, I, I kind of try and remember to just be really um, aware of details. Um, how do you do something in a short blast, like you only have a day to do a story. You only have four hours to do a story. I think the, the, the tenets of this kind of reporting that I'm talking about can be boiled down on a very short framework. My, my first, I'll just give you a quick Katrina story. Um, I got to New Orleans. Um, everybody's sleeping wherever they can on floors. I was at the Baton Rouge Emergency Me Medical Center the first night, sleeping on the, the concrete with the lights on with many reporters. And um, I got in around midnight, and around 4 in the next morning, another reporter and I decided to get our, work our way down into New Orleans. And we went in by twos because New Orleans was rumored to be unsafe. And it took us about five hours to get through a ton of checkpoints. We were turned back. We'd have to get a map and circle our way into the city, another route. We paid someone 40 bucks to bribe us through. Well, not really bribe, but take us down into, into uh, a parish that was blocked off. Finally get down there. We're downtown New Orleans. It's now 1 o'clock. My story's due in about three hours. I don't have a story. And uh, we're going by the convention center, which we all know that what happened in the convention center. And there's just people walking out at the convention center, milling around. And we're under the interstate piling of I-10 or 90, I always forget. It's right downtown. And I see this woman and this child walking hand in hand down the interstate ramp. And I said to C.C. Connolly, who was driving our car, I'm like, just let me off here. I went and talked to her. I said, what are you doing? She said, we've been in the convention center, me and my grandson, Eddie, for three days. We can't take it. We cannot take another minute of it. We're going to try and hitchhike our way out of New Orleans. Went back to the car. I said to my colleague, I'll find you later. This is the story I'm going to do. I'm going to hang out with this woman, and the place is going to be under the scaffolding of the interstate in the shadow of the convention center. I had to have all my gear with me because I had to find a place to file my story. So I basically walked around in circles with these three women, uh, these, these people. What was compelling about, her name was Adrienne Picou and her grandson, Eddie, two compelling things. Um, he was carrying a box of Scooby-Doo cereal. Why a child who, who's, you know, they're, they're, it's like with something, this is biblical, hellish atmosphere, and this little boy's carrying a bright box of Scooby-Doo cereal. And I look on Eddie's T-shirt, he had a Spider-Man T-shirt on, and I see someone had written in ballpoint pen on the collar, Eddie Picou, date of birth, 10-8-98. 
And I said to Adrian, I said, who wrote that on his t-shirt? She goes, I wrote it so that they would be able to identify him. And she starts weeping. And, you know, you hear something like that, and it is the theme of the desperation of the hurricane. That's all you need to know for that day. And I just spent three hours walking around in the heat with her. Looters were coming by us, not with television sets, but with orange juice. And she you know, took some cold orange juice. She was wandering, trying to get up to the highway. And this is where the highway was blocked off by the Gretna police. And there were barricades not letting anybody get up on the highway. People were literally outside baking like ripening fruit in the sun. And this is our landscape. And that was the framework of the story these interstate pilings, and how was she going to get up there to get out? And it was a very simple story, and that's, that's what place does for you. It's just locate yourself and try and filter all the tensions and dilemmas through that sense of place. The only interruption I had, this was really funny, I've never been on the radio in my life. My cell phone's ringing, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I think it's my editor because it's getting late. <clears throat> um, Ann, this is so-and-so, will you hold for, I mean, Sally, Sally, this is uh, somebody, uh, would you hold for Robert Siegel? I'm like, wrong number. And I hang up, and, um, and they call me back. I'm like, yeah, what? <laughs> it's kind of busy, you know? Robert Siegel thought I was Sally Jenkins, another reporter they were trying to interview. So anyway, he's like, well, we, we got to do this now. And I'm like, all right, can you describe where you are? I could never make it in radio. You know how you guys start off in these beautiful chunks of linear, I'm like, it's real hot out here. You know, this is like the biggest nightmare in the world, and I'm sure they will never, ever ask me to do that again. But what was really interesting, I was down there for a couple weeks, and, you know, they were always, NPR was always looking for reporters on the ground to, to be on the air later. All of my colleagues and other colleagues would drop everything they were doing for the chance to be on radio. And it wasn't because of, you know, fame or whatever. It was because it was the most immediate form of communication at this really important time. And as journalists, we wanted to be as immediate as possible. And radio was the best way to do it. Yes? Did you feel a conflict about wanting to help her get out of there? I mean, you left the car. Right. The, the, the question is um, conflict about helping Adrian or not. Every journalism magazine in the country right now is writing about this. Um, uh, I have a couple thoughts about that. Number one, why you saw American journalists so emotional during coverage of this is because American journalists have not seen suffering up close and so protracted. If you've covered um, Africa or other wars, um, this, is a, this is daily reporting. You know, and this, this ethical framework that you have to devise for yourself is just a part of your DNA as a reporter. We're not used to that sort of suffering where people are literally pulling on your sleeve, asking for help, asking for a ride out. Um, I gave away a lot of water, power bars, let anybody use my cell phone I wanted, but it was the Adrian reporting that caused me the most anguish because she wanted a ride to Baton Rouge with Eddie. I couldn't give her a ride to Baton Rouge. I had to find a way to write my story. I didn't know if I'd even be going back to Baton Rouge. It's an hour and a half drive. But that's my ethical framework. And I, I, to be honest, I also called my editor in the middle of this because I was so torn. How could you not help this woman and this child? And I called my editor and he said, you're not a Red Cross worker, you're a journalist. And I know he's right. The best service that we can do is tell someone's story accurately and, and truthfully. But, you know, luckily, as it happened, you know, I rigged up a medic truck. Some medic came by after I'd finished my reporting. And this was typical of New Orleans. Big sign that says medic. I'm like, yes, perfect. They pull up to me, ask for directions somewhere. I said, I have no idea where that street is. 
But this woman over here and this child, they know where it is. I'm sure Adrian can tell you exactly how to get there. She can take you there, and she needs your medical help. Well, we don't have any medical supplies. We're not medics. I mean, that was New Orleans. It's just nothing was as it was supposed to be. I said, she can take you where you need to go. Put her in your car, please, and take her. And they took her across the bridge. And two days later, she was, a day and a half later, she was in a fundamentalist Christian church in uh, Louisiana that was a FEMA-certified shelter. And then three days later, she was a cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere, Texas. So the, fortunately, that had a happy ending. I had some role in it. But I have to say, I mean, we, you can't sort of stop what you're doing to drive someone 90 miles up to Baton Rouge to, to help her. It's, but it was a really hard thing to, to do. And there's no hard and fast rule on that kind of thing. It's sort of your own. Because whatever our own ethical framework is, how does a regular person understand that? That's crazy. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to them, understandably. I'm curious how you managed to retain Right. Well, obviously, I got her cell phone right away. She had a cell phone. It wasn't working. Nobody's cell phone was working. Mine was, I guess, because it was a 202 area code, but her 508 cell phone wasn't working. But I did get her cell phone. The story appeared in the next day's paper. I got hundreds of emails from people around the country wondering what the hell happened to Adrian. I didn't know. Two days later, I finally got a hold of Adrian and when she was at that shelter in northern Louisiana. And keep in mind, I'm trying to keep writing daily stories, and I've, I'm brokering this big, sort of massive um, support thing for Adrian. Everyone's trying to rescue her and send her stuff. And then a woman in Texas who had read the story drove to Louisiana and picked up Eddie and Adrian and brought them back to the ranch. I was in Texas on a shelter story two weeks later and ended up spending the night with Adrian at the ranch. And, and so I got to see her one more time, and now she's been relocated to Smyrna, Georgia, um, with the Department of Agriculture. Back to the Dairy Queen story. Yeah. I'm trying to, you, you, you talked about, um, you talked about um, stepping back and letting it happen. And I'm trying to struggle with how we would do that in, in a radio piece, because you need to be there sticking a microphone in everybody's face, or, have the microphone close enough to whatever sound source you're trying to gather. And I'm, I'm trying, I know you're not a, a radio reporter, can, so I'm, I was sort of struggling with a way to put it in a way that you might be able to help answer the question. How do you step back and take notes? What? Jeez, I'm, I'm, I, I, I had it all worked out in my head before I stood up. You need to be able to talk to people without them knowing that you're talking to them, I think is the equivalent of what we would need to do. Or is the writing going to be enough to convey without one needing to have quality sound in the piece? I'm, I, I can't, I really can't address some of the technical challenges that you guys face. Um, the, the only slight experience I've had is, you know, we're becoming more like you in that the Washington Post website, for instance, has several videographers now that are doing stories with us. And I tend to work with one, and he mics people at a distance. And if a guy is a short order, low-wage cook, it's, yeah, it's different. I, I don't know how you, how you do that. I mean, yesterday I was asked the question of how do you get, to, oh, it's easy to have someone relax when they're looking at a pen and a pad. It's a whole other ball game when they're loaded up with equipment. And... You know, I asked a couple radio folks later, I said, I know it's a whole different ballgame, but what I answered, and I said, does this hold true for you guys? 
people tend to forget you're there the longer you stay. The problem that you have is a shortage of time, so they don't have that comfort and luxury length of kind of relaxing into themselves and getting used to the equipment. But people do tend to open up when you're, you just put in the shoe leather and you have the luxury of time. It's not really, do you want to work that hard? It's, it's do you have that kind of time? But I can't really address the, the, technical, the technical things. It seems like a great technique and an important thing to step back, let the event or the lives, lives going on that you're going to be describing go on without you Well, sometimes, like with Cisco at the drive through window, I would stand kind of behind him at the drive through window and try and see the cash register from his point of view, see the cars coming down the window. He would be hanging out the window. So, I mean, I, I don't know technically how you'd do it. And I wish I had tape of Cisco. His voice is ten times better than any crappy little dialogue that I could capture. I, would, I, I, would, I wish that I could have his voice in there, but I, but I couldn't. Yes? Two quick questions. One is about what we call, and I don't know if you call it in the print business, also box pops, basically approaching people on the street mm -hmm. and, and asking them. And unlike you, I have no problem picking up the phone, calling someone. I have a lot of problems approaching somebody outside a mall, outside of movie theaters. I think they're going to be annoyed. They're just going to turn me away. And I might get, you know, might ask 10 people and get two possibly maybe usable bits of tape, or for that matter, if it was for a print article. And, well, maybe I'll just answer that, let you answer that, and then I'll ask the second question. I mean, how do you approach somebody at the mall or something? I mean, it, it does, it's weird. It's, it's, I hate to do it, too. It's, first, it sounds so, you know, it, it kind of just is that, I, you know, sticking a microphone in somebody's face. But I think you rehearse what you want to say, and you get it down pretty good, and then you just keep using that over and over. I'm here writing about X. Do you have five minutes? I don't want to trouble you. I mean, I'm an apologist. Other people are, I listen to Susan Stanberg, and she, like, sets the agenda. She's in control. She's authoritative. That's totally not what I can, or can do. And so you just have to get comfortable with your own approach and kind of practice it as time goes by. Um, and I always find when I'm doing stuff like you're talking about, I hate to say it, if, if you do 10 and get two nuggets, if you do 20, you'll get four. It's one of those things where you just keep doing more and more and more. It's not like you're shopping, and you always want to be careful. I notice so many journalists, they go out and shop for quotes who plug into their thesis. That's bogus. That's so not what we're supposed to do. What we're supposed to do is go out and see how people feel and, and think about a neutral question, a question that, that really gets at the crux of something, and see how they feel and just keep asking it. And wait till you get both an array, a balance of feelings, and, and um, I always wait for emotional reactions. And you, you, that means just obviously spending a little more time. I mean, if I have to cover something that starts at 9, I am such a nervous Nelly, I'll probably get there at 7 and start early, just because I know I'll get fired by the end of the day. That's how I operate. I'm going to get fired at the end of the day. So um, kind of just keep dragging the lake. Does that make any sense? It's not a very intellectual answer, but... The flip side of that is that the microphone often gives me an entree. Uh -huh. you know, I, I'm a professional, and I've got a reason to be talking to you, and people get interested, and they want to come talk to me, because I've got a microphone, and, and head, right, I've got a microphone. <laughs> and it really allows me on entree into places where I couldn't just go up to a stranger, and into their living rooms, you know, right. to say, tell me all about yourself. I'm a professional journalist. I find some people get really freaked out by um, a non-professional manner, and it's not um, calculated, but they're used to that microphone, like the Brian Williams voice, you know, which is, that's what they're expecting you to be like, and when you're not like that, they kind of, 
they don't understand, well, who do you work for? Like the town, the college, you know, the high school newspaper or something? They're just used to you being in such a professional, authoritative, I'm going to tell you what it's like mode that they do kind of get a little disoriented when you're asking an honest question full of curiosity. My second question is I've, I've just returned to full-time radio after being largely in print for the last five years, and I remember covering an otherwise completely boring summit in Rome, uh, the food summit at the Food and Agriculture Organization. And the only really interesting time I had was when I spent six hours over at the so-called alternative summit, where all the NGOs were gathered and all the interesting activists and what I ended up with, I ended up turning around, I think, of a, a fairly decent piece, but I really freaked out from time to time because there was so much color, so many interesting things. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I was talking to this person, and then I was pulled in another direction, and I had so much material for, I think it was about 700 words, <laughs> right. which is uh, about a page and a half. Right. Uh, not ex I mean, and, and again, I think, with the help of my editor, I, I think I did a pretty decent job, but it, there were different points where I thought, I've got so much and I've got no red thread, no nothing running through it, no focus. Right. Well, there's two things. You need to be narrow in that kind of situation, be as sort of drilled down as deep and narrow as possible as opposed to being kind of wide and scattershot. And also it gets to concept. This Marty yesterday was talking about ideas. This guy was had so creative. If I had half of his mind to think about story approaches, he was talking about a guy who sold Italian ice in Queens and just the way he figured out how to tell that story. And that's what I'm talking about. Increasingly, we don't have have time to think. I mean, the news cycle is only getting faster and faster. My prediction is we're not going to be a Monday through Friday business anymore. I've already seen the first of that going at the Post. It's going to be kind of a weird rotation so that you're always there, always on. And that goes for 24-7, not just Monday through Friday. So what's being lost in this faster news pace is actual time to think. And you've got to somehow build that thinking time into your day. And do it not with people who sort of celebrate you, but people who challenge you. You know, it's too easy in our business to just hang out with friends and say, oh, wouldn't it be great to do this? And they're like, yeah, that'd be great. Well, no, it wouldn't be great. And so try and find people who are, who are better than you and, and identify your own weaknesses as a journalist. I'm constantly thinking about what I don't do well. And how can I get better at that? Do what you're afraid of. If something panics you, then, then you've got to try it and start learning everything you can about that subculture reading everything you can about that subculture, listening to the music of that subculture. Just immerse yourself. There's, um, you know, the bane of our existence um, is cliches. And uh, I have this kind of imaginary list in my head of words never to use. Um, I just won't use them for, an, for arbitrary reasons, like the word wan. I hate the word wan, W-A-N. What does it mean? It means nothing. Um, I, had this, I had this friend who worked um, at Nightline, and she and a guy were always getting on planes to go to Jerusalem or go to wherever, and it was always in, like in February in a Washington Reagan airport in a snowstorm, and they're sitting there looking at each other like, how much longer are we going to be in this business? But they would play this game, and it was like, what are the ten phrases you don't want in your obituary? Horrified onlookers <laughs> from dental records. Now, <laughs> huge fireball. <laughs> um, you can pretty much read any newspaper story or listen to. This is much less in radio, but in newspaper stories, like these phrases that mean nothing and they are the stock of writing. Um, what do they say? You know, um, mid-size, um, pastoral, patriotic, 
urban, heartland, folksy, um, um, God-fearing, that's my favorite, God-fearing, hard scrabble, um, liberal, conservative. There's one argument that we need to be telegraphic and say what we mean, and the word liberal just gets across a million words when you can only have room for one. But just for the heck of it, sometimes push yourself to think of a better substitute. And that better substitute always comes from reporting. And that means instead of liberal, you know, you could say 62% voted for Kerry. Instead of heartland, you can use, you know, quilting circles. If you see signs for Mabel's quilting circle, meetings at seven, um, um, hatcheries, silos, church marquees are fabulous ways of, of getting, you know, heaven or hell, the choice is yours, as sort of, you know, Pentecostal Flannery O'Connor marquees. And just be super observant and try and use those reported moments to, to telegraph something instead of these, these kind of hackneyed phrases we use. Um, and do you guys have patience to listen to one cool story? On, okay. This, um, I'm going to play, it's, it's a little on the long side, it's five minutes. Um, it's from 1988, and I think the concept is really, um, really neat. It's, uh, Jay Allison did it years ago, and it's about a Vietnam veteran who was, um, it was, his life was ruined because of the war, and he found salvation through moving to the Florida Everglades to track the endangered Florida panther. He'd also written a book, and so what Jay did was have the present day in the swamp of the Everglades, and he got a friend of his to read from the book, and it kind of is a parallel track. But the place, the sense of place, is a village in Vietnam or the murky Everglades in, in Florida. A day set aside to mark the end of one war, kept alive in the national cohesion of a second, lives on war. this Veterans Day after the anguish of a third. The night is over. We see these men and know them once again and know how much we owe them, how much they've given us, and how much we can never fully repay. President Reagan today at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., where he vowed that American boys should never again be sent to a war that they cannot win. This is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Renee Montaigne. One veteran of that war, James P. McMullen, has set his life down in the book Cry of the Panther. It's a tale of war and sanctuary, of beasts and deliverance. His own salvation came through a struggle to save something else. Well, think about this. It's, uh, it's July. You're in Vietnam. It's 100 degrees. You're hacking through a forest a lot thicker than you can ever see here with a machete until you drop. You're going at 170 pounds. In one month, you're down to 145. Guys are going down with heat exhaustion. Now you've got to fight the Viet Cong. He's ambushing. He's doing something nutty to you, right? So when I came in here, or when I came to the Everglades, People would ask me, geez, you know, coming to the Everglades like that after Vietnam War, I would think it was the last thing you want to see is jungle. Yeah. And it was the opposite. To come into the Everglades and to look around like this and not see a possible ambush or um, a Vietnamese face, whether it's Viet Cong or just a villager, you know, sneaking around a corner looking at you, to know that the somebody isn't out here that's going to take a shot at you or you're going to trip a wire. Why, hell, the Everglades, piece of cake. 
As I write this, I'm in my canoe, drifting in the Florida Everglades in search of the endangered panther. The layers of August heat creep across this wild land in waves. I watch the stillness seem to move as a breeze pushes the heat across water and sawgrass. I need only to move to sweat. Vietnam was the same. I asked Jay about this yesterday. I'd never met him, but I met him here, and I, I asked, I'm going to play you this next section. It's actually a 12-minute piece. I'm just playing two or three minutes, but he talked about the need in radio pieces um, for sonic surprises. And this piece is 12 minutes, and this so-called sonic surprise comes at the halfway point, just about the time the viewer, listener, reader, is, is wanting something more, because this guy is extremely insightful. Um, he's almost hyper-intellectual, and there's a lulling quality to that. So you have to do something to interrupt that, to break it. To, it's that, it's that uh, sonic surprise is a fantastic way to describe that. We do the same things in writing. Um, here, here it comes. It wasn't a panther, it was you. <laughs> okay, now take it easy, take it easy. She's gonna do a job on me here in a minute. I'm gonna get another scratch, aren't I? You don't scare me. <laughs> I felt I was taken over for a period of time by the Everglades and the panther, I really did. To be caught up, in the swamp okay, okay, where are you going? with a wild animal, obsessed to where nothing else matters, including my wife and family, and never wanting to leave the swamp. We're talking a, almost a total possession, okay? And it's a very eerie feeling to know that you're not in fully control of things. <laughs> now, you're, now you're getting mad, aren't you? Am I gonna get another scar? I got scars all over my body, don't I? That you've given me. Let's just do it one more time. You know, I was uh, mesmerized by the cats, and I knew I, I wanted a cat. I literally met a man in the swamp. He was fascinated with my tracking the cat in the wilds. And um, tracker came from a litter of one of his captive bread panthers that is out in the Everglades. I started raising tracker when she was like three and a half days old. She's five years and 10 months now. and. Uh, she came out with me in the swamp to track wild panthers. She was in my pocket, she was in my backpack, and she got bold enough to walk alongside of me and make circles. And, and um, she taught me more about panthers than any human being could possibly. Oh, okay, okay. Hey, no claws, no claws. Hey, tracker, no claws. No claws. No jumping. Stay. There. Uh, don't jump. That's No! No! I, I just love that. Is that cool? I mean, I just, it's such a sense of wildness. It's like the man and his demons himself, and then you don't know what this cat is doing. There's clearly something gone amiss in that room, and I just I think that it's the, the neatest thing. It's that surprise. Yes. What do you do when you don't have a panther to give you a sonic surprise? Okay. <laughs> yeah, we have to have panthers in all our stories. <laughs> right. Uh, that example brings up something that, that a number of your examples have brought up, too which is how uh, we see place often most effectively, I think, through the eyes of other people. And so there's the kind of story where you go into a landscape and you observe, 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 and explain, explain, and describe, and describe. But I wonder if you could comment on the other strategy, which is 
keep your eyes open until you find someone through whose eyes you can see that place. And if, if that's the more, maybe the more emotionally powerful way to do it, or effective way to do it. As opposed to? To reporting what you've seen. Oh, um, I mean, what I try and do is remove, I mean, this is a faulty, you can never remove yourself and everything you bring with yourself to your questions and all that deconstructive stuff. But you try and see life through someone's eyes and you try to experience, really experience life through their life experience. Um, this, this may strike some as corny, but I always try to do what the person's doing. Um, you know, it's like that raging bull, you gain 40 pounds uh, example, um, Robert De Niro gained the weight to be Jack LaMotta. It's not quite that, you know, extreme, but if, for instance, you are working in a North Carolina crab processing plant, as I did, um, covering, I covered some women, the story was essentially um, a season of labor where African-American women had picked the meat from blue crabs, which is probably the most excruciating labor you can do. I don't know if anyone's ever held a crab. They're extreme. It's like holding a box of razor blades. And you're using a little stainless steel knife and extracting the meat from the crab. And you do this for nine hours standing on concrete. And you make about $6 an hour. Um, I was writing about these women coming from a Mexican village to North Carolina to do this sort of labor. And how in the world could you begin to write about that experience without trying that yourself and seeing what it's like to hold a blue crab and trying to get the meat from it? They don't have training when, before they come. It's basically get off the bus of a four-day ride from central Mexico and North Carolina. You stand there and you start pulling the crab meat out. You've got to see what it's like from their point of view. You've got to stand there. I mean, I always... Um, you know, they're standing there for eight hours. I would never, ever let them see me bend my knees. I would never even squat down to give relief to my knees. I don't know if anyone's ever worked for eight hours standing. It's really hard, and it's, you get really tired, and it's extremely tedious. And so always try and um, put yourself in the, in the shoes of the person experiencing that life. You know, obviously, when these women took this bus ride from central Mexico, I was there with them to experience it. That's, that's a dream situation for a reporter and something we'd all like to do and can't do. But if you ever have the chance to do it, go through every step of the journey, every step of the day with them. You don't go to sleep until they go to sleep. And I mean, that's about as close as you can get as explaining life through someone else's eyes. It's, it's sort of experiential. And you know, short of being that person, I don't know a better way. It's, it's just kind of putting in the time and be willing to, to do what they're doing. That's not always, it's not always, uh, like I said, it's a luxury to be able to follow somebody. We don't all have that time. And, um, you know, try and think of, you know, when I spent that summer, I literally had to throw my clothes away at the end of the summer. Just they smell of seafood and bleach. It's the same as going to 9-11. I was on the, the pile 14 hours later, and you just have to throw out your clothes. But you use those clothes as a memory, a visceral memory of what it was like, and hopefully that informs your storytelling. Um, that probably didn't really answer it. Um, I don't think you can get... There's always going to be a degree of separation from us and them. But always be thinking about how you can minimize that degree of separation. And be mindful of the person that you're interviewing. You know, the, the stakes are different for everyone you're interviewing. The stakes are different from um, the women from Mexico 
than the African-American 96-year-old woman who's been picking blue crabs since she was an eight-year-old girl at that table and try and see life from the different eyes and positions and point of views of the stakeholders. Yeah, just the, and my point very close to your point, I think, is that uh, this is about a sense of place and conveying a sense of place. And I think that from what you're telling us, it seems that to be able to describe a place through someone else's experience is also a, a very good way of doing that. And it filters for you and it tells you what's important, what's important, what details to pick up on. Right. I mean, you know, Google is probably going to be the death of journalism because you never have to leave your chair. And this is like the anti-Google. This is, but I understand that's a very luxurious experience to get to do something in person and not on the phone. I've, I have had to write plenty of phoners and they, you've got to really think hard about how to make that authentic and textual reporting. I mean, I had a friend the other day who had to do a two-minute piece on, um, you know, Disney and Viacom and no one was talking. What do you do? I don't know the answer out of that. That's not sort of my area of expertise. What I can talk about a little bit is about is what do you do when you get to land on the ground there? You always, always, always want to go there. And the more you can leave the office, office the better. Are there any more questions so far? Yes. You mentioned talking about uh, when people don't want to talk to you. Yes. You said you were going to talk a little bit about your strategy. Well, first of all, you need to think about, I mean, everybody has different comfort levels telling their story, whether there's something to hide or not. And you really need to, again, put yourself in someone's shoes. What, what is their life experience? And what would it be like for them, for a reporter to come and ask to be let into their life? Um, I try and spend time thinking about what I'm going to say. And I never, ever, ever sell the more you sell or have a salesy pitch, the more it's going to come back to haunt you, haunt you in the way of someone pulling out and not wanting to do it. I'm talking about the realm of n not public officials here. They have no choice generally but to talk, and they must talk. They have to talk in some way. I'm talking about the more delicate issue of a private individual who doesn't have to talk to you, and what do you want to do to get them to talk? An example uh, from last year in my own reporting life was I spent... Um, most of 2004 writing about what it's like to discover you're gay in that year charged with gay politics. Just to take it back, getting back to that big cosmic idea like with the immigration example I gave. Well, here we had immigration and I sort of decided to go the second generation immigrant, rate, immigrant route in the American South. My editors were pushing me to do gay marriage because it was in the presidential election, Massachusetts, Supreme Court decision. It was just gay marriage was the topic, and I could not get stirred by that topic. I, after some reporting, I found that a marriage is a marriage is a marriage, and they're all boring and crazy, and, you know, it's like it doesn't make any difference. So how do you back up from getting from an editor kind of wanting you to do that? Yes, I did have to go do a gay marriage story in San Francisco um, to sort of feed the beast, because you can't say no. you got to do something. But, but you're gathering information to how to make a case to tell them their idea is really bad and how to get your own idea going. So I convinced them to let me write about what is it like to identify yourself as gay in this year when the whole country's screaming about it. And you could argue that the, the screaming wasn't really about marriage, it was about homosexuality itself. And so I decided to write about that experience and I picked two very different subcultures. One was uh, Sand Springs, Oklahoma, which is outside of Tulsa. A lot of Baptist churches in the phone book uh, there. 
And the other place I went to was Newark, New Jersey, two very different places and very different sets of um, experiences going on as, as it relates to being young and gay. So how do you find somebody in Bible Belt, Oklahoma, who's going to let you use their name and let you take pictures and let you into their life for quite a while? I um, just made a bunch of calls. I mean, it's so subterranean in Sand Springs, and even Tulsa to some extent. The gay youth group that meets in the city, they don't even post the times and place of where they meet. It's too dangerous. They feel it's too dangerous. So what the, the group does, the teen group does, they put in their little, they go around to the public library, they go to the seven gay-related books at the library, and they put in times and dates of their meetings in those books. So it's, it's all very sort of, you know, back in the day. And I called somebody who's connected with this gay youth group, and then you start kind of, you know, how we do. We work our way in, and you interview dozens and dozens of people. And then one of these people said, you know where you should check out? There's a teen dance club in Tulsa on Saturday nights where, where gay kids go. When I say kids, I mean, you know, 20 to 16. So I go to this place. It's the crummiest little asphalt, one-level strip mall in industrial Tulsa. Like, you know, curtain rod shop, sewing machine repair. It's way back behind. And I pull up on a Saturday night. There's 200 cars at this place. There's license tags from Arkansas on the cars. There you're, here we go, back to checking what are the bumper stickers. I looked at the license tag. They had driven from Arkansas. There was a Missouri tag there. That tells you about the isolation and the experience of being gay in this part of the country. The building is literally pulsing. The music is so loud, the door, it's like a cartoon door, you know, it's coming off. And I walk in there and it's like, this is the place. You just have that feeling, you know, you sense these kids have driven so far to get here, to be with each other. And they were doing some really cheesy Mr. C's cha-cha shuffle, which was a cross between rap and line dancing. And just having the time of their lives, and they were and they were playing pool and darts and dancing with each other, and that's where I eventually found the young man that I wrote about. So we ended up talking until midnight that night, and his name was Michael Shackelford. And at about 11:30, he said he had to go home. I'm like, why do you have to go home? My curfew's at at midnight. What 17-year-olds do you know who not only have curfews but abide by them? It just said something really nice about this young man. I said, um, I'm going to be writing about what it's like to be sort of gay in a Bible belt, and I'd like to talk to you more. Is there a way I can come out to your um, house and talk to your mom? 17 years old, we need a mother's permission, right? Michael's mother was not even um, beginning to get comfortable with the idea that she had a gay son. She was trying to put him in reparative therapy, and she was still hoping that he would get with a girl. And they belonged to this huge evangelical Christian church. So I drove out to their house after church and spent about three hours with Michael and his mom. How do you make a case for something like that? She hadn't even told her friends that she had maybe a gay son. We basically talked for three hours before I told her, you know, that I wanted her to be and her son to open up their lives. And it was a very cathartic experience for her because she had so much trapped inside. Here was this outsider who wasn't going to, you know, go blabbing to the ladies at church that Michael might be gay. It was a very kind of cathartic experience for her. And as we relaxed at hour two, I explained that I was doing a story about gay youth in America and how hard it is and how hard it is particularly in this part of the country and one thing that worked in my favor is that Janice had 
she didn't even use the word gay. She said, well, you know, since Michael became this way. I mean, that's where she was. She was not, she couldn't even say the G word. So I didn't say the G word. You know, you kind of try and model where somebody is. You don't take them to a place beyond where they're comfortable because it's about them and it's not about us. And uh, l luckily, she had seen the Laramie Project. The blockbuster in Sand Springs had just gotten the Laramie Project. That terrified her because she was so afraid someone was going to hurt Michael. As it was, two kids at high school had already found out that Michael was gay because he had a rainbow trucker on it, rainbow sticker on his pickup. He shouldn't, you know, his mother said, well, you're just asking for it. You get what's coming. Why do you have to advertise? And Michael, it felt great to put on the, the, the rainbow sticker. He had gotten so many threats at school, he stopped using the men's room for eight hours during the school day. So he wouldn't go to the bathroom all day. That's kind of where they were when I first met them. And I laid out the case for Janice saying that this is what your son's going through and this is what you're going through and I would like to follow you through this experience. Well, do you have to use our names? Yes, we have to use your names. Why do you have to use our names? Because people won't believe it's true. What about pictures? We're going to take pictures. People need to see you. People need to see you going through this. It has to be real or people will doubt it. They need to connect. And uh, you know, I didn't ask for an answer that day. I wanted her to think about it. I also had brought copies of the Washington Post. It's very helpful to show your work to somebody. And I also provide um, names to call of other people I've written about, some that ended happily and some that didn't end happily, hopefully knowing that everybody would at least say, you know, she told the truth. It wasn't a very pleasant experience, but it was true and accurate. So I provide them with, you know, a list of names and numbers and the Washington Post, I you know, open up the front page, and this is where it's going to be if this doesn't freak out somebody. And then she goes, well, they don't sell the Washington Post around here. Let's drive in at Tulsa to the Internet Cafe, and, and here's where it's going to be on the website. You, you cover your, you make yourself so transparent. And then when she asked, what if something bad comes of Michael? What if someone hurts him after this is published? I said, I can't promise that one way or the other. I, I don't know. This is going to have to be your decision. And I didn't ask for, it's another reason you don't push someone, because what if something had, some harm had come to him, and I had tr twisted her arm to do it. You let it be their decision, and that minimizes, um, that minimizes the surprise at the end, it minimizes them blaming you, it just, it's better to sort of throw up all the obstacles at first before someone signs on board. And they're less likely to pull out midway through if, it's, if they're along with it. And every step of the way, Janice ended up calling me back a week later. She wasn't crazy about it. Michael really wanted to do it. She wasn't crazy about it, but she decided she was going to do it and see how it felt. I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we just spend a little bit of time together and you see how it feels? And, and that's how we did it. And I was off and on with that family for probably six or seven months. Um, it's, that's, it's, it's giving them the, the power to say no is very important, and you don't want to overly convince someone. As it turned out, no one hurt Michael when the story published, but this group, Fred Phelps from the Westboro Baptist Church, does anyone know them? They are sort of so far that sort of, you know, Dobson and Focus on the Family think they're loony birds. They're, they're way over here. They put these flyers all around town after the piece appeared and picketed Michael's church and his mother's workplace and made his life and the life of the town sort of a living hell when they came to town. And they did that because of the story. Then everybody in the Shackelford family knew Michael was gay. Everybody in the town then knew he was gay. 
And I ended up going back to write about that situation. But some harm did come from that story. I'm very curious to hear how you came to even go back to the family's house after church and spend that time if the subject of the article didn't come up until like hour two of the conversation. I'm just curious how that went. Right. Well, when I said goodbye to Michael at 1130 that Saturday night, I said, I want to come out to your house and talk to your mom. They were going to church that morning. He talked to mom and said a reporter wants to come out. And, I, and she agreed, and I came out, and I said, here's what I'm working on. What's it, you know, I know Michael's been struggling with this, with this thing, and <clears throat> I'm talking to, this is in the news, as you know, and I'm spending some time going around the country talking to kids in Michael's circumstance, and I wanted to talk to you about it. And it's really not an interview at that point. It's just kind of a conversation, letting them get a sense of your intent, and you also seeing if they're going to be good subjects. I mean, the two criteria for me are always access. You can't do these pieces. You can't even do a week-long piece unless someone says yes. Secondly, do they have the power to say what's going on inside? Can they be introspective? Can they talk to you about their feelings? Michael at 17 wasn't great. He's basically an Oklahoma yes-no type guy. And he was a tough interview, but luckily he sort of got used to the interviewing process and his mom was pretty damn great. So it worked out. Yes. Uh, you talked about spending like seven months with Michael's family, and a lot of the pieces you've talked about today have been kind of extended, uh, long projects. And I just wonder, as you talk about sense of place, I know when I've worked on features for radio and I started working on two or three features, I mean, it can start to get jumbled, and I feel like I'm losing kind of threads in the different pieces that would drive them to become better pieces. I, I just wonder how you strategize your workload mm -hmm. while you're working on those seven months with Michael's family. Are you doing other stuff around the country? Well, I, well I'm, I have a, I'm super spoiled in that I do projects mostly. But, you know, the, Katrina happens, and I go down with everybody else and file daily stories under, um, you know, very tight time pressures. When I do dailies or when I'm doing a weekly, we, for us a newspaper, we'll do a weekend, or meaning we start reporting on Tuesday and we have to file the story by Friday. You basically work really intense days. I do because I want to try and get everything, and you think really hard about you don't want to leave any bases uncovered. And that's how you sort of just, it's like casting the widest net possible. And as day two reporting comes, as day three, you're sort of narrowed down on one focus. I tend to like the one soldier approach as opposed to the whole army approach. It's easy, to, it's easier, better deeper, more emotional to tell a large story through a narrow focus. And sort of these broad spectrum stories aren't, aren't um, desirable for me to report or to read. And in terms of time management, um, I tend to have someone I check in during the day with about here's what I'm doing. It's often not my editor because maybe my editor is not the best person to do that with. Maybe it's the guy who sits next to you who's really good at this kind of thing. So you need kind of like that compass somewhere, either the one you've developed in your own head or someone to call and say, here's what I spent my day doing. Am I wasting my time? How do, I, how do I sort of time manage? But I tend to sort of really chicken with the head cut off, run around a town in the first two days trying to get everything. And then you get a sense of what the place is like. You get some authority by day two of what a certain place is like. Yes? You said, so the seven months you were in the town, or you were coming in and out? Well, I, no, I came in and out, and I was also doing Newark, too, which is, Newark is a whole other experience from, uh, from Tulsa. And I was following a group of kids there. Um, there had been a, a murder in Newark in May of 2004. A 15-year-old lesbian was at a bus stop, downtown Newark. A man tried to pick her up. She said, I'm gay, no thanks. And 
he stabbed her in the heart and she died. Now, he, when Matthew Shepard died across the river, uh, 4,000 people marched down Park Avenue. President Clinton made a national remarks about hate crimes. Um, every gay rights organization flew into Laramie, Wyoming to maximize the political moment. Sakia Gunn died and no one did anything. And there were a couple of organizations from Manhattan that did take the train over to Newark and, and um, be there. But this giant, incredible political awakening happened in Newark among the young lesbians there. Um, at the place where Sakia was stabbed by, you know, 3 o'clock the next day, kids from all over New Jersey started showing up, girls mostly. They turned this bus shelter on the corner of Market and Broad into a shrine. They brought Nick's jerseys, they brought mass candles, they brought eulogies, they brought you know posters that said rest your head baby girl. And by the next day there was you know 500 people out there in the rain and in the dark and then they marched to City Hall and at the day of the funeral there were 2,000 kids outside that funeral home. Nobody wrote about this case. And I went to the, the, the Newark three weeks after the murder and started interviewing some of Sakia's friends and through those interviews found a woman named, a girl named Felicia Holt, and she became my Michael Shackelford of, of, of Newark. And, and her experience was very different from Michael's, though just as dangerous in some ways. You know, while the white middle class political agenda was centered on gay marriage, Felicia could care less about marriage. Her objective was staying alive in a dangerous environment, and so that became the tension of that story. So for that year of reporting, it was kind of toggling between Newark and Tulsa. How did you hear about that story if nobody was reporting well, it? Well, they were small, 10-inch, Newark, the Newark Star-Ledger did the best job on it, um, and the New York Times wrote, you know, 8 to 13-inch, maybe three or four or five pieces on it. It just, it wasn't covered. When you looked at the, the, the library of work that had been produced by Matthew Shepard, and you looked at these tiny, tiny little clip file on Sakia Gunn, you, you just have to write about that. And it also, afforded the chance for someone who likes documentary to be in a subculture. I got to live in, live in Newark off and, off and on. Yes? So how do you work your relationship with uh, families and your subjects and dropping in and out of their lives? And how do you deal with them? You, when, you're not, when you're not there, you have to babysit a lot by phone. You have to ask what they're doing that week. I would check in every three or four days with, with all the kids and the parents. High school offers a really nice framework. As we all know, there's certain rhythms in a high school year. There's, there's uh, you know, basketball season, there's football season, there's homecoming, there's prom, there's graduation. So there's benchmarks in the year of a high school student that you know you want to be there for. And so I had that working for me. Kind of that was that organic, easy, freebie thing that kind of dictated my time. But I would say, I always say when I'm doing that babysitting phase, what are you doing this week? What's going on at school? What happened at the meeting? What are you doing this weekend? And I would try and plan my reporting trips around the events in their lives, always looking for action. Action, you gotta have action in stories. And uh, you wanna be there when they're doing something and you can watch them do that. With teenagers, it's a lot of time burning because I would, Felicia would say, come over at 10 on a Saturday morning, and I'd go over, and she and all her friends are crashed out till 3, and it's basically me sitting at the side of the bed until they wake up till 3. You know, it's just a lot of wasted time. You can't, teenagers are really hard to write about, but it's, you kind of have to do that. And then, you know, when you talk about trust, how to, for me, trust is not, trust is 
just being there, people are very flattered when you show up when you say you're going to show up, and you just kind of hang around, and you keep showing up. You become this figure, and then the best possible way to be is invisible. I remember one night I was with Felicia and her friends. We went to the African Globe Dance Club, this rat trap little teen gay dance club in downtown Newark, and I'm the only white 44-year-old in the place. Um, everybody else is like, you know, 20 and got giant pants and hats and, you know, the, the North Face parkas are piled up like a mountain in the corner and they're all dancing, you know, and it's Missy Elliott. I, if I hear Missy Elliott one more time, I'll go crazy. But anyway, I walk in and some of the kids are suspicious and uh, they're like, they said to Felicia, they go, who's, who's, who's she? Who's that? Felicia goes, ah, that's nobody. That's just Anne. And it's like, yes. You know, that's what you want to like, get to. It's like when you're nobody. You're not somebody. And, you know, yes, it's easier to do that with a notebook and not, not all your equipment. But I do believe some of that can happen if you just get the time to hang out with them and be there. You become a fixture, really an annoying fixture to, in the lives of teenagers often. And, you know, also when you do these long-term things, if, it's, if, it's, if they don't want you there for a night, just bow out and catch up with them another time. You need to give people their privacy. You can't be there all the time. I mean, push for as far as you can take it. I've asked to sit in on someone's therapy. I mean, always ask, and don't be afraid to ask, and, uh, you know, force yourself to ask, but you also have to know that they need their privacy, too. And the more kind of rope you give them to have that time, I think the, the better the relationship goes. Yes? How do you, um, well, do you think about this before you write the story, how you're going to position your subject in relation to the larger trend? <laughs> yes, in, in newspapers, I, I'm terrible at this. We call it a nut graph. It's kind of the what for graph. How do you work the social policy into a piece when it's largely immersion reporting in a subculture? You, you, have, to, you have to, first of all, know the issues. For instance, in Oklahoma, I you know, knew that there were 11 anti-gay bills pending in the legislature. So you have to really do the, the hardcore reporting and know what the tensions and issues of the day are, and then figure out artful ways to, to know um, to, to work that into the piece. For instance, on the day the um, Oklahoma legislature had a meeting on the state steps, an anti-gay referendum where, you know, a thousand people show up from Oklahoma, I knew that I wanted to be with Michael Shackelford around that time. I needed to go to the political rally, but I also wanted to contrast it to Michael's life. And so you, you, I figured out ways in my reporting that I could be at that rally and then figure out what Michael was doing that day. While the rally was happening, Michael was polishing his truck or something, you know. So you just have to stay on top of the news and what's happening, policy papers, what experts are saying. It's so funny, when I first moved to Washington, um, I was so terrified to be in Washington. I'd come from the St. Petersburg Times. Everyone's really smart. Everyone can speak three languages. You know, They've all gone to Harvard. And so I did my first little interview my first week. I said, I'm going to go to the Carnegie Institute. I'm going to go to Brookings. You know, All these places always hear about an NPR. So I go there, and I was writing about immigration. And the truth is, they're about 14 months behind where we are. We're kind of where they're working. We're out in the field. They are writing the papers and are often a year and a half behind we are. So the interview ended up being about them asking me about immigration. And don't doubt what you're seeing on the ground. Don't, don't rely on policy papers too much and what the experts are saying. You're out in that field too, and you, you can see what's happening in some ways a lot earlier than, than what some of these, these folks are saying. And I think we better wrap up, you guys. Thank you so much for this. <laughs> <laughs>